This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56, and these are the words that he pens. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they, his disciples, were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began bringing their sick to him on beds so that wherever, he, wherever they heard he was, they came. And wherever he came, in the villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that, he might touch, that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Two weeks ago in our study, I said that there were four overarching themes... Uh, four overarching lessons uh, in our text. That text was specifically the feeding of the 5,000. It's found in verses 30 through 44. And we got through two of those lessons. I've given them to you on your outline this morning. If you have an outline, would encourage you to have that out. Better yet, would encourage you to put the tip of a pen uh, to paper there. I think you'll listen better if you take notes as you listen this morning. But I've given you the first two lessons that we already looked at two weeks ago. That first lesson is that Jesus teaches his disciples, subsequently us today, to rest in his presence. Jesus teaches us to rest in his presence. If you can remember back two weeks ago, Jesus' disciples had come back to him. They had come back from a, from a long uh, period of exciting, extended ministry, and they were tired. And so Jesus encourages them to get away to come and to rest. And so they get in the boat and they travel across the northeast tip of the Sea of, of Galilee there. But rest is not what they found. Rest is not what they found. Secondly, Jesus teaches us to reflect his compassion. Not only to rest in his presence, but to reflect his compassion. Remember, Jesus' disciples saw the crowd... They knew that the crowd were, were 8 to 10 miles away from their homes. The sun was setting on the day. The people were hungry. They had made no provision for dinner. They had brought no food with them. And so Jesus teaches his disciples a lesson about compassion. Matter of fact, Jesus, Mark, uses the word splanknizomai. It's the Greek word to have compassion on the people. It was used of Jesus. That word was used of Jesus back in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus had compassion on the people when he saw them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples in the feeding of the 5,000 a lesson about reflecting his compassion. Remember, Jesus' disciples wanted to send the people home. I mean, Jesus, we came out here to rest. The people came. They've, 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 they've been a burden. They've messed up the plan. And so now send them home to get something to eat. 
And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you feed them. You feed them. You give them something to eat. Jesus is teaching his disciples a lesson about reflecting his compassion. And where we left off two weeks ago was in point three there. Jesus teaches us to rely on his resources. To rely on his resources. Jesus tells his disciples, look at verse 37 there. Chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus answered his disciples, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That's about a year's worth of bread, a year's salary worth of bread, and give it to them to eat. And he said, what do you have? How many, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five, five loaves and two fish. Five loaves and two fish. That's where we pressed the pause button two weeks ago. And here is the lesson that Jesus is teaching us. Write this down if you're taking notes. Jesus teaches us to rely on his resources. To rely on his resources. Don't don't worry about what you have or you don't have. Just do what I command. Trust me. Don't trust in your own resources. Don't trust in your own way. Don't trust in your own provision. Don't trust in what you think you have or what you don't have. Don't trust in you. Trust in me. The lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples here. Look at verses 39 through 42. Mark writes, Then he, Jesus, commanded them all, that's the crowd, to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, let me pause right there. There is a beautiful picture right there in our text that harks all the way back to Psalm 23. You see the picture here? Psalm 23, 2, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now with that picture in mind, that picture in view, transpose it here upon our text. When he commanded them to sit down, he commanded them to sit down on green grass. This is the chief shepherd appearing here. The chief shepherd that David writes about in Psalm 23. Mark continues, so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the loaves and the two fish, he, Jesus, looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people and he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. Trust me, Jesus said, I can provide. I can take your measly provisions. I can take your five loaves. I can take your simple little two fish and I can multiply it to feed the masses. Here we see Jesus, the chief shepherd, presiding over the multitudes like a Jewish father would over a Jewish family meal. He sits everyone down in an orderly fashion in smaller groups, and then he takes the disciples' meager provisions, prays for the meal, and begins to hand loaf after loaf after loaf after loaf after loaf after loaf after loaf. To his disciples to give to the people. It's interesting, the word gave there. Jesus gave uh, the provisions to his disciples to give to the people. The word gave there, it's in the imperfect sense. Literally, uh, in the original language there, Jesus gave and kept on giving bread and fish to his disciples to distribute to the people. Here we see the creative power 
of Jesus. Jesus multiplied the bread. He multiplied the fish. He brought into existence something that was not previously there. This was no illusion. This was no hocus pocus. This was no magic trick. This was no pooling the veil. Jesus took their meager provisions and multiplied it before their very eyes and fed the people. Jesus has the power to take a spiritually dead man and to give him also, or to give her also, what did not previously exist, namely, new life in Christ. If Jesus has the power to take five loaves and two fish and to multiply it and feed the 5,000, to make something out of nothing, then he has the power to create something out of deadness in us to give us spiritual life in him, to give us new birth, which did not previously exist. I can't help but think about Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Notice also that in previous miracles uh, that Jesus had performed with his disciples present, his disciples played a very passive role in those miracles. But in the miracle here, Jesus' disciples play a very active role. Jesus involves his disciples completely. We have to keep in mind that the miracle took place in Jesus' hand. We're not the manufacturers of the miracle, neither are Jesus' disciples. We're only the distributors, just like Jesus' disciples are here, of, of God's grace and his blessing to others. But God wants to use you, and God wants to use me in the passing to others of the bread of life. That's the picture that's taking place here. I mean, Jesus is not just merely feeding people's temporal hunger, although that's what they go away thinking. They, they go away with just their bellies fed. But Jesus is, is teaching a living sermon here. Just as this bread is going to, to fill you, is going to satisfy you, albeit temporary, I am the bread of life. I am the manna with the capital M that has come down from heaven to satisfy you for eternity. That's why Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me and eats will be satisfied, will hunger no more. I am I'm living water. He who drinks of me will thirst no more. That's the living sermon that Jesus is preaching here as he feeds this multitude on the grassy green. They don't get it, and neither do the disciples will learn. But it is interesting that Jesus is using his disciples. He's involving his disciples in the process of taking the bread of life to the people. And friends, I would submit to you that that is also true of us this morning. If you are here this morning and you know Christ savingly, Jesus is involving you. No one's sitting on the sidelines. No one's waiting to be called into the game. You've already been called into the game, and so have I. To distribute the bread of life to those who are hungry and yet to be satisfied by Christ. God wants to use you. Look at verse 42. Mark writes that the people were satisfied. The word there is chortadzo. It literally means to be gorged. The people were gorged. This temporal but complete filling of these people's bellies, again, is a picture of what Jesus does for us spiritually. It's a picture of what Jesus does eternally in a man's soul or in a woman's soul when, 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 he, when he, that man or that woman, comes to Christ in humble faith. 
Jesus satisfies every thirst and every longing. Matter of fact, David in Psalm 145, 16 writes, The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. Jesus is teaching his disciples to rely on his resources. He wants to use them, but they must rely on his resources. Number four, Jesus teaches his disciples, and he teaches us subsequently, to receive his blessing, to receive his blessing. Look at verses 43 and 44. It says, And they took up twelve baskets, full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Notice the abundance of grace here. Everyone had eaten. Everyone had been satisfied. Everyone was full, and yet there were 12 baskets left over. Interestingly enough, that's one for each of the disciples, right? Here's, here's the picture. Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. I'll take your meager provisions, and I'll feed, I'll feed the masses. And then I will show you an abundance of my grace by the fact that there will be a basket full of bread left over for each one of you as a reminder that you are to continue to take the bread to others. You have a basket, friends. I have a basket. Every single one of us has the basket of God's abundant grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where are we taking the bread? Who, who are we distributing the bread to? The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches us to receive his blessing. See, the bread that Jesus is giving, it's a symbol of a much greater picture. Again, a living sermon here. Jesus' purpose was not ultimately just to feed the people, but rather to reveal himself as the one, capital O, who satisfies our souls. Turn briefly to John's account of the story for just a second. Keep something there in Mark chapter 6, and turn to John chapter 6. Turn to John chapter 6 here. John chapter 6, verses 26 through 35. Okay? John tells us here in this text that the very next day, the crowd, many of whom apparently stayed there all night long, as we'll see as we pick up our text for this morning, that crowd awoke, seeing Jesus and his disciples. Uh, they got off into their boats, uh, and they went looking for them. So Jesus has just fed the 5,000 people, Many of them, probably, presumably most of them, stayed there all night long, potentially even slept there. When they woke up in the morning, they went looking for Jesus, the one who had fed them just the night prior. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's the picture here. John chapter 6, verses 26 through 35. John writes, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me or you're coming after me or you're following me or you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, not because I performed the miracle of feeding you, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And Jesus says to them, do not work or do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. That's grace. The Son of Man will give it to you. You Humbly ask for it. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Great question. Phenomenal question. Jesus answers it. Look at your Bible there. 
He answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what's... God, I mean, Jesus has just said, here's what you have to do to have eternal life. Believe on him whom God has sent. There's a period at the end of that sentence. And do you see what the people do right after that? They say, well, what sign will you give us? Like, hello? I mean, we just fed 5,000 of you the night prior. Are we so dense sometimes? They ask, what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it was my father that gives you true bread from heaven. Speaking about himself here. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, it's interesting because if you were to go on, and we're not going to, but if you were to go on and read in John chapter 6, it says many of his disciples turned away. Which disciples, the word mathetes, just means followers. So it can be spoken of in a, uh, in a proper sense of the twelve, and then it can be spoken of as just the followers of the crowd, those who came after Jesus. And it says many of his disciples, after hearing this, turned away and no longer followed him. Hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. Let me ask you this question, friends. Have you turned to him in humble faith and repentance and received the blessing of eternal life? I hope you have. I hope you've trusted in Christ savingly. I hope that you're not relying on your own works, your own status, your own merit, your own ability, your own achievements, your own performance. Dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Unfortunately, many people are more interested in the gift than they are in the giver. Jesus teaches his disciples to receive his blessing. Now, moving into our text for this morning. Number five here. We learn the lesson that Jesus' plans are sometimes different than ours. Jesus' plans are sometimes different than ours. Look at your Bible there. Look at verses 45 and 46. Immediately. Remember, this is the fast-paced gospel here. Mark is writing like a newscaster from one event to the next He's taking us, look over here, see this, hear the news. Look over here, see this, hear the news. Look over here, see this. Here's what Jesus is doing now. We see it here immediately. He made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, or after he had sent them away, he went up on the mountain to pray. So here we are after the fact now. Jesus has fed the 5,000. Uh, this, is, this is after the fact now. Jesus has satisfied the hunger of the crowds, and he sent his disciples away before he dismissed the crowd. There's a distinct urgency that we see here in verse 45. Mark tells us that Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side. Jesus made his disciples. The word made there 
the, the, the Greek word is to force or to compel or to constrain them. Maybe that colors in a little bit for you here. Jesus compelled, he forced, he constrained his disciples to get in the boat and to go before him to the other side. It suggests also that Jesus' disciples were reluctant to leave. But Jesus wasn't asking questions here. He was making statements. Why do you suppose, we need to ask this question, why do you suppose that Jesus forces, compels his disciples to get in the boat and to leave before he wraps things up with the masses? Why do you suppose that Jesus sends his disciples away before he concludes with the 5,000. Mark doesn't give us any further detail, but John again fills in some of the gaps for us. And John tells us uh, in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, don't turn there. But John tells us that when the people saw the sign that he had done, when, when the people, when the crowd saw the miracle that Jesus had performed of multiplying the loaves and the fish... They said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus sent his disciples away because he was fearful. Here they are, they're young, they're spiritually young, they're impressionable, they're excited about him. And he's, he's fearful that they might also get swept up in the crowd's excitement to force Jesus to be king, to force him into a position of kingship. He knew that they, his disciples, were susceptible to to the prevailing push and the excitement of the crowd. He knew that they were susceptible to wrong thinking. Jesus had not come to be a human king. Jesus was already a king. interesting to know that this is the very thing that Jesus denied when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. Remember Satan in Matthew chapter 4 took Jesus up to a a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and then Satan said to him, these I will give to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. In other words, I'll make you king of all the kingdoms. And what did Jesus do? He denied that, he rebuked Satan and he preached the word to him. That very thing Jesus is denying again here in our text. Jesus had not come to be a mere earthly temporal king. Jesus wasn't interested in Satan's lie or the lure of the people to try to make him king. He's already the sovereign king of the universe. And so Jesus sent his disciples away in order that he might calm the crowd without his disciples being swept up in the moment. And then after the crowd is calmed and sent back to their homes, Jesus retreats to a solitary place where he prays. Very similar to the language back in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus went out to a desolate place, the wilderness, where he prayed. That's where Jesus goes again. The disciples probably didn't understand while Jesus asked them to depart. As a matter of fact, the text implies again that they didn't want to go. Jesus forced them. He compelled them to go. They didn't necessarily want to go. And as they rowed away from shore, it was likely with mixed emotions. I mean, here they are charged and jazzed and excited about the miracle that Jesus has just performed, but yet confused as to why he would ask them to depart before him. Potentially even a bit disappointed 
by the seeming change of plans. But Jesus, the infinitely wise shepherd, had a different set of plans for these guys. He was about to teach them a lesson that they would never forget. I'm reminded of wise Solomon's words. In a man's heart, he plans his ways or his, or his steps. But what? The Lord determines them. The Lord decrees them. A man can plan his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Here's the reality, friends. You and I don't know what the sovereign Lord has planned for us. We have no idea. We don't know what God has planned for us another second from now, another five seconds from now, a minute from now, when we get up and leave here this afternoon, when we get in our cars, when we go home this evening. We have no idea what God has sovereignly decreed for us outside of what he has already communicated to us in his written, revealed word to us. We don't know. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. We don't know what the sovereign Lord has planned for us. But here's what we do know. When Jesus says, get in the boat and go, we better obey. When Jesus says, get in the boat and go, we better obey. Remember that God sent Abraham out of Ur, not knowing where he was going? He didn't know where he was going. Jesus is in control of your life, he's in control of my life, and the best and wisest thing for you and I to do is simply to obey him, even when his plans do not line up with our own plans, friends. There are two things we know for certain. First, that Jesus is in control of whatever is coming. And secondly, that he has a purpose in all that he ordains for us. It may or it may not be easy. Jesus never promised us ease in this life. As a matter of fact, he said, in this world you'll have what? Trouble. Yeah, you can take that to the bank. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. In this world you will have trouble. But Jesus, the chief shepherd, knows what he's doing. We need not argue, we need not complain, we need not grumble or try and teach him how our way is better. Instead, we need to just get in the boat and go. Get in the boat and go. Jesus is teaching us that his plans are sometimes different than our plans. Number six, Jesus is willing to send you into a storm in order to grow you. Jesus is willing to send you right into a storm in order to grow you. Look at verses 47 and 48. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Jesus knows exactly what we need. You believe that? I hope you do. I hope that you believe with, with unwavering certainty that Jesus knows exactly what you need, that he knows exactly what is best for you, and that he will do what is best with you. I mean, again, the disciples had just completed a largely successful mission. Even if you go back to the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus' disciples had, had been ministering in and around Nazareth. They had been preaching the gospel. They had cast out demons. They were healing the sick. And then, and then Jesus includes them in the miracle of feeding the 5,000. I mean, this is large success as far as ministry is concerned here. You can imagine that they were probably sailing on cloud nine. I mean, the excitement must have been almost palpable. They were humming right along. But therein lies the danger. Therein lies the danger, friends. Success 
is often the precursor to self-reliance. Success is often the precursor to self-reliance. When things are going well, well, when we're sailing right along, when it seems like things are going without a hitch, that is when we are tempted to begin to trust in our own flesh, in our own abilities, in our own thinking, in our own ways. But Jesus loves us enough to not let us wander too far down the path of self-sufficiency. It's okay to be on a mountaintop as long as we don't get careless and walk off the cliff. That's often what we do, right? Because when we're on the mountaintop, we think we got there by ourselves. Unfortunately, when we're doing well, we oftentimes think that we're the source of our own success. Spiritual blessings need to be balanced with burdens and battles. Otherwise, we, we run the risk of becoming pampered children instead of mature sons and daughters. We need that balancing of difficulty, of straining, of being burdened, and being in the middle of life's struggles and battles. Blessing balanced with burdens is often the development plan that Jesus implements with his followers there any amens in here to that? Just in your own, in the, own, the quietness of your own heart, anybody experience that? I mean, the training method that the chief shepherd often employs with his children is a blessing balanced with burdens. Remember the last storm that the, that the disciples found themselves in? That was back in Mark chapter 4. It too was followed by an exciting day of teaching. You had this exciting day of ministry, and then Jesus, his plans are to put his disciples out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of a dinghy, in a gale force wind. Why? So they don't become proudful or pr prideful. They don't think that they're the source of their own success. Later in Acts, uh, the book of Acts, the storm of persecution begins right on the heels of the, disciple preach, the disciples preaching and 5,000 people coming to Christ. Then persecution starts. Blessing and burdens. In the first storm, back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus was with his disciples in the boat. In this storm, he was on the mountainside praying for them, praying for his disciples. What, what a beautiful picture here, by the way. I, I love this. Paul reminded Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus, this very moment, is in heaven interceding for, praying for his own. Wow. He's not too preoccupied with keeping, keeping the, the, the stars in their correct orbits. He's got all that under control. And yet he has time to mediate, to advocate, to pray for you and I. I love that. Jesus told Simon, 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 behold, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that you may not fail. Our resurrected Lord is praying for us this very moment. What a beautiful truth. Friends, storms have a way of humbling us. They resize us. They remind us that we aren't as big as we think we are. We aren't as smart as we think we are. Or we aren't as strong as we think we are. Jesus' prerogative with us has much less to do with our comfortability in life. That's not what he is most interested in. He is most interested in you bearing more and more conformity to him. That we will become more Christ-like. 
that the old man and the old woman would be continually peeled away, taken off, and the new man created after the likeness of our maker would shine forth. That's Jesus' primary prerogative in your and my daily life, is making us more like himself. How wonderful that is. And it oftentimes, again, includes trouble in this world. You'll have it. You can take it to the bank. But Jesus is using every moment, every circumstance, and every trial to grow us before we get to heaven. And so what do we do? We trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. To trust and obey. Do you notice, by the way, that it was the obedience of the disciples that landed them out in the turbulent sea? your Bible there again. Though it was a bit reluctant, Jesus forced or compelled his disciples into the boat. It was their obedience that landed them in the middle of the storm. Imagine what their disobedience would have done. It's a great lesson for us here. If you submit your life to Christ in obedient pursuit of him, this does not relieve you of life's sorrows. As a matter of fact, it very well may intensify them this side of eternity. But God is using these sorrows, he's using these difficulties, he's using these pains to ready you in a practical sense for heaven. To ready you for the day when you stand before him without spot, wrinkle, or any such defect. By the way, let me say here as I bring this point to a close, this brings the prosperity gospel under condemnation. What does the prosperity gospel teach you? Oh, sign up for Jesus and life is easy. And God's number one prerogative is for you to be happy and healthy and whole and wealthy. Well, that wasn't Jesus' prerogative for his disciples. That's not his prerogative for us. In this world, you'll have trouble. God is willing to send you into a storm in order to grow you. Next, Jesus never has you out of his watchful sight. I love this. Just look at verse 48 again. And he saw. Look back at your Bible again. Did you, did, did you see that? See, these are the things that we oftentimes skip over when we're reading our Bible. Just these short little beautiful phrases. And he saw. He saw them. He saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Even though the disciples enjoyed no visible presence of their, of their chief shepherd, of their leader, Jesus had not taken his eyes off of them. Oh, what wonderful comfort this is for the believer. Wow. Wherever you are and whatever your circumstances may be, the watchful eye of the Savior is ever on you. Whether you're alone or you're with company, whether you're in sickness or whether you're in health, whether you're in distress or whether you're in ease, whether you're in calm waters or whether you are in raging seas, the same eyes that saw the disciples see you. Don't you ever forget it. Don't forget it. He sees you. He knows. He's watching. He's well acquainted with your rising and your lying down, the psalmist tells us and everything in between. Our ways are never hidden from him. That's as glorious as it is terrifying, by the way. Right? He sees us in our righteousness, and he sees us in our unrighteousness. 
No creature is hidden from God's sight, but we're all laid naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews chapter 4. He may not take away our troubles in the same way or in the same timing that we like best, but rest assured that he has not left us, nor has he forsaken us. The writer of Hebrews encourages us here. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all ways and yet without sin. Therefore, as a result, let us draw near to him with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may find help in our time of need. I love that. If you're looking for a passage to memorize, by the way, uh, on on this uh, point here, I would encourage you to memorize Psalm 139. How about the first 10 verses? And I know some of you are thinking, I'm not good at memorizing scripture. But we're awfully good at memorizing names and addresses, and telephone numbers, and birthdays, passwords, and all kinds of other information that's important to us. God's given us a wonderful brain between these two ears here. We encourage you to employ that brain in the memorizing of God's word. Psalm 130, even if you take it a couple verses at a time or one verse at a time, Psalm 139, 1 through 10. Oh, Lord, you have searched me. Speaking about God's eyes seeing you. Searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. And you're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there was a word on my tongue. Behold, oh, Lord, you knew it all. You've enclosed me behind. And you're before me. And you laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high I can't attain it. And then the psalmist says, where can I go from your presence nowhere I go to heaven you're there and Sheol you're there in the heights you're there in the depths you're there and the joys you're there in the tragedies you're there in the wonderful days you're there and in life's deepest sorrows and difficulties you're there there's nowhere that I can go where I'm outside of your presence I love that Jesus never has you out of his watchful sight next Jesus will allow you to struggle as a reminder that you need him. He'll allow you to struggle as a reminder that you need him. Look at verse 48 again. Mark tells us they, that's the disciples, were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. I love the phrase here. Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully. The word painfully there, it's the Greek word basanidzo, means to suffer, to be pained, to be tormented, to be agitated, or to be tossed. You ever raise the, the, the lid on the washing machine when it's in the middle of a spin cycle? There you go. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Sometimes that whole machine just looks like it's going to dance off the floor. They were making headway painfully. Jesus' disciples were being tossed by the waves. They were suffering, and they weren't getting anywhere. I grew up fishing with my dad. Oftentimes in the summers, uh, we would uh, find an outfitter and rent a canoe and go smallmouth fishing on a local river uh, in the, in the Indiana, Indianapolis region, uh, somewhere in Indiana where, where I grew up. And I can remember uh, you know, fishing with him. You set out in the canoe. You got sandwiches packed in the cooler. You're, you're ready to come home with a raw finger from lipping fish all day. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's funny uh, that when, when, when the, the water's up, 
on, on the front end of the day, early on in the day, uh, if, you, if you make that cast that you think is just going to be the sweet spot cast and instead you, you put it right into the brush on the side of the river or you put it right in a tree, what do you do early on in the day? Well, I'll tell you what we did early on in the day, and that's that you cut your losses and you snap the line and you just keep on going. But later on in the day when you've done that six, eight, ten times and you realize that your bait's getting low or you don't have many lures left or your jig heads uh, aren't as plentiful as they were when you started, what do you do when you get hung in the trees? Well, you turn that canoe around and you start paddling upstream. And friends, I can tell you, as probably many of you know, that is laborious. That is tiresome. It's tormenting. All to get that $3 lure out of the tree. Paddle upstream to retrieve that guy. Paddling against the current, it's difficult. You don't get anywhere fast if you get anywhere at all. It's wearying. And Jesus looks out from the mountainside here and he sees his men struggling on their own. These guys are in a spiritual storm here. Matter of fact, Satan would love nothing more than to sink, to absolutely capsize this little vessel with the early church in it, to bury them at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. But that's not going to happen. Christ is faithful, and he's not going to allow us to be tested beyond what we can bear, right? He'll provide a way of escape that we may be able to stand up under it. You'll be tempted, you'll be tried, you'll be pressed, you'll struggle, and Jesus sees it all. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. If you have a cinematic mind, you can almost picture the scene here. I mean, Peter with his soggy beard blowing in the wind. Uh, he had likely taken charge at this point and was giving instruction to the other disciples. I'm reading into the text here, by the way. You can imagine the constant spray of the ocean water made it hard for the disciples to see. The constant, unrelenting, howling wind made it difficult for them to, to keep the bow of their small boat pointed in the right direction. Their, their feet were probably freezing as the bottom of the boat was filling with standing water. I mean, this was the situation for the better part of seven or eight hours. And it seemed as if there was no relief. Look again, verse 48, Mark writes, And about the fourth watch of the night... He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. What does that mean, by the way? He meant to pass by them. It almost sounds like Jesus intended to walk past his disciples. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, this nondescript phrase, passed by, it's charged with significance. Its use signaled a special revelation of God. As a matter of fact, at, at Mount Sinai, the transcendent Lord passed by Moses in order to reveal his name and his compassion. Again, at Mount Horeb, the Lord revealed his presence to Elijah by passing by. In Job chapter 9, verse 8, and in verse 11, Job says, He, speaking about God, He alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Behold, He passed by me, and I see Him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive Him. What, what do these verses reveal? Well, first of all, they reveal the immense separation between God and man. God is God, and I am not. He alone treads on the seas. He alone can do what humanity cannot do. His wisdom is beyond compare. He moves mountains. He shakes the earth. He obscures the sun. He arrays the heavens in their splendor. He treads on the waves of the sea. But first, it signals us to understand that he is God and we are not. But secondly, secondly, 
God is teaching us something about his nearness and his presence. Jesus wanted his disciples to see him in the midst of the storm. We need to see Jesus in the midst of our storms, as a matter of fact. When we're in the middle of life's difficulties, we need to get our eyes off ourselves and our eyes on King Jesus. Do not let your circumstances eclipse your view of God. Let your view of God always be larger than your circumstances. It's a great book that I would commend to you. When people are big and God is small. It's an excellent book. If we don't have a copy in the library, I've got one in my office and I would love to let you borrow it. I, I know we're at our time here. Uh, and that puts me in a great conundrum. Give me 30 seconds to figure out how I'm going to do this. Friends, Jesus doesn't always stop the storms of life immediately. I mean, we all know that, right? Here are Jesus' disciples. They've been struggling for seven or eight hours here. Jesus does not always calm the storms immediately. Sometimes he lets us painfully struggle at the oars in order that we might be broken of our tendency our natural tendency to trust in our own little human remedies and fleshly efforts instead of relying on his presence and his power. Next, Jesus will meet you in your difficulty and calm your anxious heart. He'll meet you in your difficulty and he will calm your anxious heart. Look at verses 49 through 52. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out, for they saw him and they were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. We saw that before as well. The wind ceased at his command, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And many critics here have tried to discredit the Bible because the Bible speaks about Jesus walking on water. I mean, they, they come up with all kinds of things. Jesus must have been walking on a sandbar, or it was an optical illusion. Jesus was really walking on the shore, and from the disciples' perspective, it looked like he was walking on the, the, the uh, water. Foolishness, friends, foolishness. That's what happens when you try to explain an unexplainable God by natural laws. The one who created them can violate them. Here Jesus comes walking on the water to his men. Isaiah tells us the Lord makes his way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. When Jesus walks on the water toward his disciples, he walks where only God can walk. Notice that Jesus calls out to his disciples. He says this, take heart, it is I. Take heart, it is I. The, the the Greek here is ego imi, literally I am. Take heart, I am. That ring any bells? Yeah, it does. Just like the phrase passed by. What was it that God told Moses as he passed by him there on Mount Sinai? I am. What do I tell them? Who do I tell them sent me? Tell them I am. Jesus uses the exact same language. He employs the exact same language here in our text to calm his disciples' anxious hearts. No sweeter voice has ever been heard from the disciples than this voice right here when Jesus says, take heart, it is I. Trials don't always go away, but when the trials increase, his grace is always sufficient, his nearness is always there, and he speaks his words of comfort to us even today. Take heart, I'm there. 
I'm there. Before you were here, I was there. Jesus lets him know that he, he is the great I am of the Old Testament, that he indeed is the sovereign one over all things, including their storm. And now Jesus looks at his disciples with the same compassion with which he looked at the hungry crowd just the night before. Brothers here and sisters, here's a precious truth. I'm going to take two minutes and we're going to wrap it up. I'm just going to give you the last one without saying anything about it here. When, when the hour seems darkest, and it will at some point, when the hour seems darkest, Jesus will show himself as near, and here's the most beautiful truth, we'll reach the shore. We will reach the shore. Reaching the shore may be in this life, or reaching the shore may be passing from this life and into glory, but in Christ, all believers will reach the shore. That is great consolation in the midst of life's struggles, challenges, and difficulties. Number 10 here, Jesus reminds us that there is never a shortage of ministry. Look at the last few verses there. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret, and they moored to the shore, and when they got out of the boat, the people, here they are again, immediately recognized him, ran out. Uh, they began bringing their sick to him on their beds, wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or the countryside, they laid their sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garments. And as many as touched it were made well. There is never, ever, ever a shortage of ministry. Never. And there won't be until the day Jesus calls us home or he steps back into this world. There's never going to be a shortage of ministry. The question is, will we be engaged in it? And I pray that we will. I pray that we will as individuals and collectively as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, all of the uh, just beautiful imagery and pictures we see here of Christ, the great shepherd. Thank you uh, for the truth, the, the reality that you meet us in the middle of life storms that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus, I pray that our view of you would always trump our view of our circumstances. Lord, that our, our circumstances would never eclipse, uh, crowd out or overshadow our understanding of who you are, your grace and your sufficiency and your kindness uh, and your provision for us. Uh, Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.